Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. This program has been brought to you by the National Cooperative Bank. They've been our sponsor for 10 years now. And our guest today is Dina Omar. Hello. Hi. How are you doing this morning? Good. How are you? Excellent, excellent, excellent. And you're the founder, one of the founders of the Palestinian Soap Cooperative. Is that correct? Yes. Dana, this month is Women's History Month, and we're celebrating women's history. That's women that tell stories uh, about women's history. And right now we're mainly talking about women in co-ops. So can you tell me the your co-op story, the soap yeah. co-op? Yeah, yeah. First, thank you so much for having me on. I feel deeply honored. And um, since the invite, I've, I have been able to go back and listen to a lot of the shows that, that you all have archived. And I think that this is a really special program. And I feel very grateful to be in conversation with you. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, the story of my co-op. It's, there's so many things to mention. But I would say that it started because I wanted soap that didn't make my head hurt. Um, uh, so the story is that I've always used, or my family, like older people in my family have always used Nabosi soap, which is very simple soap. It's made out of three ingredients, water, a sodium compound or lye, and olive oil. And it's scent free. And I thought that it was like growing up. I thought it was the thing that the old people used, but then and, like and only, was, only for old people, right? This is something yeah. for old people. Okay, okay. But then I got older, and then I got pregnant, and I don't know what it was about being pregnant, but I would smell the like detergents and all the other soaps, and it would just make me nauseous or make my head hurt. And then I wanted to buy the soap, and. I went online and I found that the soap was $12 a bar online to be delivered. And I was like, that's strange. It should be like three, $4. And I did some research and tried to figure out why it was expensive here, why I couldn't find it anymore at the sort of Arab bodegas or Arab stores or mm -hmm. grocery stores um, anymore. And I took all of the you know, money that I could muster up, measly mo money I could. And we just bought pallets of soap and we started selling them online for three seventy-five, which I thought was a reasonable price as opposed to, you know, I think the inflated price that was being sold online before. Okay, so this is a Palestinian soap cooperative. Yes. And you said Arab. So are you from Palestine? Yes, I am from a small village called Ramun. It's in the West Bank. So if anybody's ever been to Palestine, they often come in through Jordan. And so it's sort of on the road between Jordan and Jericho and Ramallah and Jerusalem. So it's a lot of people pass through it, but it's such a small town. Not a lot of people know about it, but it's called Ramun. And I've... Um, yeah, my whole family is from there. It's, they're the community that nurtured me and brought me up. I'd say even though I grew up in the United States, uh, culturally everything sort of was dictated and uh, organized around our village community. 
So you you were in the U.S., but in the culture of Ramon. Absolutely. Like uh, our neighbor, our like extended family was always around. They lived really close by. They were our support system, our network of, yeah, community, mutual aid. Okay. So you did mention that you were pregnant and therefore all your senses are heightened and you could not take the smells of the detergents and it caused you to be nauseous, like you wanted to throw yeah. up and also gave you headaches. So that's the sense of the detergents. And so you started to look for what the old folks used. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, see, the thing is, it's like not all old is bad, right? Like sometimes the old is better and it could be, you know, like, I was astounded by the story because this is like centuries old soap, uh, at least documented. Um, the soap has been made more or less the same way for the last 800 years. And I just want to like, it, take, it takes like a while for you to like wrap your hand. So Wait they've minute. been doing the same thing for 800 years. You, you so did work. say 800 years, eight zero zero <laughs> years. This soap yes. is being made. Okay. Yes. And okay, all right. So that's twice as old as the U.S. is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Okay. Exactly. And like the thing is, is uh, these uh, factories, these laborers, it's like um, it's an embodied tradition. So they've been making this soap more or less the same way for a very, very long time. And the history of it is like they're using olive oil as opposed to often the soap at the time, 800, more than 800 years ago, was made out of animal fat. And so this is the sort of premier vegan or uh, alternative to soaps with animal fat. So they're using olive oil. Mm -hmm. And people just loved it, and they started producing it in mass. There were, but not like one conglomerate there were a lot of little factories that produced this type of olive oil soap this soap then like moved into spain and that's why they call this version of soap castile soap but the first tradition and uh one of the most prolific traditions is this sort of arab middle eastern soap particularly from the city of nablus and you say from the city of nablus n-a-b-l-u-s N-A-B-L-U-S. And how far is that from where you grew up? Uh, where my family is from. So I, yeah. I grew up in Chicago. Oh, so. Chicago. Okay. okay. So it's like, um, it's far from Chicago, across the pond. <laughs> yeah. But my family, my parents, my um, my roots uh, is Ramon. And I would say it's about a 40-minute drive. When I go to visit Ramon, my aunt's husband is from Nablus and um yeah it takes us about 40 minutes to get from our the, or the, their house to his family's house so i'd say about 40 45 minutes though because of checkpoints and like political situations and the occupation and very hard sort of like apartheid it's hard to get there and back in like a reasonable amount of time so we could be a 40-minute drive if you don't have to go through checkpoints or deal with the governance or the politics of, of what's going on. And so it could be an hour or two, I guess, but 40-minute yeah. drive otherwise. Got it. 
you know, we're going to take our first break. And so we've got, this is, we're, we're uh, celebrating Women's History Month. And the story that we're telling is of 800-year-old soap. And Dina Omar has helped to found the Palestinian Soap Cooperative. And you were, you were incorporated in California? Yes. Okay. Well, we'll be right back. Uh, please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. And today we have Dina Omar on, who's the founder of Palestinian Soap Cooperative. And she's given us the story of the uh, cooperative. But if you want to learn more about the history of Nablus soap or uh, fragrance-free pure olive oil soap, you can go to palestiniansoap.com, palestiniansoap.com. Dot com. So, Dana, what is your story? I know you said you grew up in Chicago and your family is from Palestine, but tell us about your story. Thanks for asking about it. I was born in Chicago to a Palestinian family, parents, a big extended family. My grandmother and I were very close. My father was somebody who was an entrepreneur. He was very self-sufficient, uh, owned a bodega. I remember when I was a kid, he would always take me to the swap meet. And, like I would be the checkout person for people to buy things from him. Mm-hmm. So I think fundamentally I was uh, very much informed by that, informed by uh, a kind of Palestinian ethic of buying good quality things for the most thrifty or affordable price. He always sort of taught me to not be played, not be taken for, you know, don't buy uh, things that are, you know, too expensive. Don't let somebody pull the wool over your eyes, you know, like just be vigilant, be be like on your toes. So he passed away when I was uh, 12. Mm. Um, But like the very sort of fundamental sort of principles about like, money and thrift, I think were very much informed by my dad. So it's funny that because like, since then, I, you know, have three degrees, I went to Berkeley as an undergrad, I went to Columbia, and I'm almost completing my uh, doctorate at Yale. And I studied social theory and philosophy and everything. But I think with this venture with this co op, uh, I feel like I'm just going back to my, I'm like turning into my dad, actually. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm just turning into this this guy who just, you know, wants to be, you know, economically independent and also like, you know, just smart about smart with your money. Um, yeah. And I think another aspect of my story is in that those 12 years of academic training, I've studied a lot about Palestine, about um you know, the question of Palestine about refugees, uh, and also a key aspect of that is the economy of um, charity or aid. Mm-hmm. And I feel like business uh, and sort of uh, fair business is a better way of engagement for pe- for communities that are historically oppressed, uh, marginalized, um, dispossessed of uh, 
their uh, resources and their their land and their homes. Um, yeah, I think the, so. One of the things that I'm, I'm are you talking about that, Black Americans now? It sounds like you said oppressed folks that get stolen their property and have very few wealth. Or, or, or who who are you talking about now? Yeah, Vernon. I mean, that's. I don't think that it's a coincidence that cooperative businesses are structures that Black entrepreneurs and the Black community find to be empowering. And it's the same thing with Palestine. I think it's definitely a model and a structure where you have distributed risk. And it's also about like resources on the front end, right? If you don't have a lot of capital or inherited wealth, um, in order to start, cooperative structure is much easy, is, a, is a more viable way of, of starting. And I also think on that back end, it reflects values of people who know what it's like to not want to hoard wealth, but want to distribute it. People who have been affected by lack of transparency in institutions, so they're committed to making sure that there's transparency in the institutions that they're creating so that everybody involved can be part of the decision-making process. And so, yeah, I do think there's so much overlap between, you know, Black economic structures, cooperative structures, also in general, the Black radical tradition in America. And I think communities sort of worldwide look to that, look to it as like for inspiration, for yeah, mutual aid, all of these things. So you grew up in Chicago, went to Berkeley, Columbia, and now Yale. Mm-hmm. So in Chicago, you get a sense of black radical tradition. Berkeley, you definitely get <laughs> radical conditions both from all kinds of viewpoints and also in Columbia. I like the way you say it though, this distributive risk, bring in your pennies or nickels or dollars for capital because there's not a lot of wealth created where there's, when you say marginalized people, which is a term I like to use too, that just means we haven't been able to raise the money or in, in America when we got wealth, it was taken away or stolen or somebody lynched or something. So we don't have the wealth, but how we pool those resources and have transparency. I like the ethical principles of co-ops, honesty, openness, openness, transparency, social responsibility, and caring for others. Mm-hmm. That whole caring thing. And you talked about the extended family that you had in Chicago, um, mm-hmm. that sort of in the culture of caring for others. Uh, same thing in, in the black community here, and that extended family through slavery and Jim Crow and everything else, we had to take care of each other. And so that, yeah, very, very similar kind of thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So your story is you grew up in Chicago and then you've gotten three degrees and you said you were pregnant. How many children do you have? I have one. Okay. And she's shiny. Yeah. I have one daughter and she's three years old. Oh, you just brighten up, boy. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I know your heart. Somewhere mm-hmm. between soap and your daughter. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's interesting. Being a mother really did change all of this, right? Like, I am an academic by training, and I was looking at, you know, I just wanted to provide some stability for my kid, so I started a business. 
So I think that, that becoming a mom actually had a lot to do with this story that I haven't really thought about, but you asking me that question does, um, does bring that up. So you're working on your doctorate now? Yes. And what in, what, what, what's the area you're working on? So I, uh, primarily anthropology, and then I have a joint certification with gender and women's studies. So what is anthropology? What is the study of anthropology? They say anthropology is four field, uh, but the field that I specifically sort of focus on is social and cultural anthropology, which essentially means the study of humans and the study of culture. And then, you know, you have archaeology and primatology and all that stuff I also think is really great. But my field of anthropology is culture. Um, so I would say anthropologists are a lot like journalists, but we also you know, we need language training. It's not like we go and just visit the site and then leave. There's like an extended amount of field work that you do, uh, very careful studies. I also really like anthropology because I feel like it's kind of a slow, like ethnography is a is what anthropologists create, create. they create ethnographies. And it's just like a very clear, slow, deliberate analysis of something. So you're not like, popping in and out. The thing I like about anthropology is it's slow thinking. Yeah, getting to know a place, spending a lot of time there, really getting to know people. So slow and deliberate thinking mm -hmm. about a culture, about a, so what culture have you studied or are you studying? Interesting question. I, so I've studied, I did my field work in Palestine and Israel and a little bit in Jordan. So I would say that the cultures that I've studied are American culture, uh, Israeli culture, and Palestinian culture. Okay. We're going to take our next break. And I would like to come back and see if you could tell us some of the things you've learned about the Palestinian, Israel, and American cultures. Or mm -hmm. similarities or differences of, of what you've learned. I think of anthropology as just history, but history about people That's and culture. Point. Really good point. Okay. So we're celebrating Women's History Month. We're talking to Dina Omar about that she founded the Palestinian Soap Cooperative in California. And they are selling soaps made out of olive oil. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and today our guest is Dina Omar. She's one of the founders of the Palestinian Soap Cooperative, a California cooperative. Dina, I said earlier that NCB has been our sponsor uh, for the nine-plus years we've been on the air. 
they've helped us both financially and just supportive, uh, helping us to know all of the players in the co-op world in the U.S. and internationally. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, or we talked about marginalized communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. So they've just been a great partner. And I imagine with, you told me earlier that your co-op has four members before the show, you told me that. So I guess you haven't had need for funding or financing or loans. But if you do, if you decide that you want to get a bigger warehouse to store your products or you want to buy your own airplane to ship it, uh, (laughs) you might look to them (laughs) for a loan. Uh, They're great people. That's great to know. I mean, it's very interesting. So we're a very new co-op. We were established in uh, 2001, the end of 2001. And we do a lot of the labor uh, and we have employees and we're sort of making up the structure and the rules with each other. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a really fun and like invigorating process to be part of the decision-making process with everybody who has a stake. So we do want to grow. We have all of these different ideas and everybody has, everybody's able to contribute to those ideas. So it's not like one person is making all of the decisions. So yeah, we are thinking about growing and, and hopefully employing more people, hopefully distributing more soap and finding different niches to do that. So I'm in the process of the same thing. We've done the show, like I said, we're in our 10th year and we're starting a worker cooperative uh, that's going to be a media company, and there's five of us. And so we're in that same process of defining who we are and how decisions are going to be made and how we use the values and principles of cooperation and all of that. And it gets to be extremely interesting, and folks get to be extremely close. So I like this process also. But I did say I wanted to come back and ask you about what you're learning as you've studied the Palestinian, Israel, and the American cultures. What kinds of things have you find similar or different in your studies? Yeah, that's so uh, interesting, such an important question. It's hard for me to answer uh, with just one or two quick things. One thing I would say is I think human beings have an innate desire to belong to communities. Um, So there is a kind of universal element to it all. I think in my studies, I've focused most on what I know. And I think growing up Palestinian and then going back to Palestine, I think what my degree gave me the opportunity to do was to understand and engage with the history um, of the tradition that I come from. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so just reading a a deep, deep history, a long history of the reasons why we do certain things or or, uh, why we act. You know, it's actually very interesting. The cooperative tradition is very prevalent in Palestine. Um, One of the soaps that we carry is called Al-Ard, is made from a cooperative. And what's it called again? Al-Ard, which is one of the brands that we carry. It means the land. And I think cooperative businesses are such an important uh, aspect of Palestinian culture because of 
distributed risk, but also because I think there's like this culture of another sort of aspect of this is that economics is culture. And the way people buy things is culture. There's a, such a thing as material culture, right? And I think one of the aspects of Palestinian culture that I've you know, come to realize is I used to think that it was something that happened over there, right? But it was also um, the cultural question that determines how you buy things, what you buy, the reasons underlining what you buy. So I think at least the way I'm framing it, and I'm not sure if this is correct, because you know, Palestine is such a, a place where there's a, a long intellectual tradition, but I would say that, you know, it's like small c capitalism. And we don't have a lot of, you know, socialist systems or structures at all. But I would say that we do have like small c capitalist structures, which is like, you have family run businesses, you have a lot of small businesses, you have a lot of merchants, you have a lot of people buying things for $1 and selling it for two. And you have a lot of people who are very concerned with not being oversold uh, bargaining. Mm -hmm. um, so really, there's there's a part of a Palestinian culture that is about buying the best fruit, the best uh, quality, you know, furniture, the best qualities of anything, but you don't want to pay more than it's worth. And that creates a kind of competition that allows there to be some sort of balance in sort of economic life uh, and culture of the people. I don't want to get too much into American culture, but I would say that one thing about living in America that I have felt very sort of off kilter about is just sort of being inundated with being told that I need to buy all of these things and having the thing that's more difficult to make or, you know, shipped from China and made from somebody else's labor. Why is that? you know, product less expensive than the product that's being made up the street. So I do think there's something about American culture that I've also learned about and also thought about in relation to economic logics that, you know, are, are all motivating the founding of the cooperative and like the trajectories that I want to go to. Okay. So in the, in the American culture, my experience is you buy the biggest and the best of what there is out there, whether you need it or not. Yeah. Okay. And I, I get from other cultures and maybe the Palestinian cultures and cultures in Africa is you buy what's needed, you, you get for the best, but only what's needed, not just so you can compare yourself to the Joneses or somebody else or say, I've got this, where this doesn't necessarily give you anything. And you end up maybe paying more for it than bargaining okay yeah, yeah absolutely for lower price and maybe that's also like just to clarify maybe that's not a specifically palestinian thing maybe that's just people who have common sense or people who don't want to just have junk all around them or be particularly materialistic yeah so another aspect of all of this is to say like what about balance you know, and what about the culture of balance? And maybe that's not Israeli or Palestinian or American, but maybe that's just about the way you want to live your life. Okay. All right. And that balance is between work and family? Is that the balance you're talking about? That's definitely one part of it. But I think what I mean specifically when I say that, or at least the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, why is it less expensive for me to buy uh, products that are manufactured in China in masks 
that are shipped all the way across the country as opposed to, you know, buying things that are made locally, that are made well, that are sourced locally. So one thing about the Palestinian soap, the way it's made, is that the olive oil that's that makes the soap is all sourced from villages around Nablus. The sodium compound or lye that's used is also locally sourced. So it's a product that's made with the environment. It's kind of a part of the, the culture of that city. And there's something about, you know, knowing where all of the components are, uh, knowing who's making them, at least the family vaguely who's making them, that I think is very much a part of Palestinian values and Palestinian culture that I grew up with and that I admire and that I want to be part of. So I did go online. I went to palestiniansoap.com and I bought nine bars of soap. And when I found out you were coming on about three days ago, maybe four, and it came yesterday, and I used the soap this morning when I showered, and it was refreshing. It was interesting. Yeah. It was. I mean, I have dry. I suffer from dry skin, and I was hoping that olive oil would do something. And my scalp started itching when I was there because I wasn't planning on washing my. But I had to wash my hair, and the itching went away. So I'm, it's going to be interesting to see what it's like after a month. What my yeah. skin says about it, and and one time trying it, my skin likes it. Okay. I'm so uh, glad. That's great. But now I did the numbers, and if you bought three bars of soap, it was 19 bucks, so it was a little bit more than $6. If you bought six bars, it was down to $5. Nine bars was $4 and some cents. Now, you mentioned 375 earlier, but that was without shipping, so I assumed the 430 440 that I ended up paying. Now, I could have bought... 16 bars and it was almost four dollars even for 410 or something so i guess the difference between what you're saying 375 for a cost and not 12 or 14 dollars you said when you first started buying it so you got it down to 375 plus shipping so plus shipping yes okay so that's the that's the main uh thing that we're sort of dealing with on a regular basis is how can we provide the most amount of soap for the least price possible for consumers. And yeah, we want this soap to be affordable for people and we want everybody to have the soap. At least for my family now, like it's the only soap we're using, especially for my kid. My husband uses it for shampoo. I don't because I have a lot of thick, dry hair, um, very curly and I can't use it, but my husband, my kid, my mom, they all use it for shampoo. And yeah, I do think it's like, because there's not very many, there's no chemicals in it at all. People are really surprised by what they're receiving because we're so used to the scents and detergents and stuff like that and, and the soap all around us in the U.S. So are you using in your um, company, the Palestinian Soap Cooperative, are you using the values and principles of cooperation? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the motivation because I think with cooperation uh, comes so many other values like mutual aid, like not leaving anybody behind. Also, it's like an ethic, I think, of abundance as opposed to competition. Uh, you want everybody to succeed because that means you're also succeeding as opposed to thinking like if this person succeeds, it's somehow a deficit to me or vice versa. Um, 
my husband comes from a, a he's Basque, um, and so there's also this like really long tradition in Basque culture of cooperative structures. What what country uh, is Basque? What were you saying, Basque? So it's like north of Spain and south of France. You have like one of the largest cooperative businesses in the city of Modrigon. So they have like also a really long tradition of cooperative businesses. And and they're also a community that's these themselves is not part of the dominant culture. So I do think cooperation and mutual aid are values that people bring to cooperatives as like fundamental principles. Those fundamental principles I want to come back and talk a little bit more about. We're going to take our final break now. So those principles I forgot to mention my website. <laughs> like I give you one thing to say. Okay, we'll, get, now. we'll we'll come back and we'll get that website after we take our next break and we're gonna talk about the values and principles and look at what the future is. We'll be right back. This is Everything Co-op, and this is Vernon Oaks. Uh, my guest is Dana Omar, who is the founder of the Palestinian Soap Cooperative. Dana, when we when we left, uh, I said to you, I wanted to come back and talk about the values of cooperation, with, and those values are self-help, taking care of self, self-responsibility, democracy, equality, equity, and solidarity. And the solidarity is how you help yourself in a group and the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. I've mentioned those earlier. So are you using those values in the Palestinian Soap Cooperative? Yeah, I, absolutely. I think definitely the idea of self-help, because it is a part of uh, mutual aid. You know, like if I value my labor and I value my time, I'm not interested in a relationship of, extraction or exploitation but i'm interested in being partners with other people who also value their time and labor and i think you know my background in gender and women's studies but also just being a woman in general and i bet you you know people from you know certain traditions and marginalized communities in the u.s would very much recognize this also so i felt for a really long time that I was working really, really, really hard all the time for other people, but that it always felt like I was at a deficit, like I couldn't just get over or, or, or like, you know, become more stable or, or, you know, reach a place where there was like, um, you know, economic self-sufficiency until I established this cooperative. And I think, you know, I want the other people in the cooperative to be thinking the same way. Because I've had that experience, and I think women historically have had that experience, certain communities have definitely had this experience of just always being, their labor being extracted, their labor being taken advantage of. And so one of the main principles of cooperative systems, I think, are making sure that people understand the value of their labor and demanding um, and, and sort of like just, it's non-negotiable. I'm putting, putting in this amount of labor, I'm, I need to be part of the ownership or I need to be part of the decision-making process. So there is no 
as a way to mitigate that relationship extraction. So now I want to talk to you about the cooperative principles, which are guidelines by which your cooperative put these values into practice. And the first one is volunteer and open membership. So is your is your co-op open regardless of gender or race or political or religious affiliation? Yes, of course. Yeah, um, absolutely. And is it democratic member control? You said a part of the decision-making process that everybody in there has a piece of it? So um, we're actually trying to figure this out. Right now it's worker-owned and worker-controlled. Mm-hmm. We started having um, allowing people to become members uh, but we're like on this online system, uh, so we're trying. To, we're actually trying to negotiate because it's such a new cooperative. We're trying to figure out the structure now. So at the moment, it's worker owned and worker controlled. So when you say member, I don't know. Like the two uh, structures that I know about are like worker controlled and then consumer cooperatives. Mm-hmm. And I think member cooperatives are similar to consumer cooperatives. And I, I don't know what that structure would look like yet. Here's, here's, uh, here's, let me just tell you, my definition, Odina, is when I say member, it is in a worker co-op, the employees are the members. They own and control it. In a consumer co-op, and you got housing co-ops, credit unions, let's say the rural electric co-ops, they're all consumer co-ops in the U.S., and then those members are the people that buy in this in the food co-op or the people that live in the housing co-op. So those are the members. It's the people that own and control that business. Okay. Yeah, uh, but I think uh, just the question of like how you know people would buy into uh, or become members of the soap cooperative is something that we're still trying to figure out. Okay. Is it going to be an online subscription? Is it going to be a yearly thing? And there's so many really cool and innovative models that we have to use as templates. Well, you said you're having fun, and there's hybrid co-ops, or some food co-ops that are both owned by the employees and the consumer. It could be that the employees own 40% of the business and the consumers own 60%, and blah, blah. So, but it's all defined by the current members that are the ones that are going to figure this out, okay? Interesting, yeah, yeah. And then there's member economic participation, and normally that means that there's some money that you have to pay to get in, money, sweat equity, some something to get in, and then when and if there's a profit, you can get some money out. But the members, again, decide how much that profit, what happens to that profit and so forth. So are you all looking at this also as you define your co-op? Yeah, so at this point, it's time. It's You work for us for a year, and then you become an owner or you have an option to become an owner. And since it's only like two years old, this coming year it would be, then you get to buy in and you're an owner for a year and um, then we make decisions from there as a large unit. And the fourth principle is autonomy and independence that this group right now, four people and maybe more after a year, this group are the ones that make the decisions and not a government entity and not uh, if you borrow money from NCB or anybody else, they cannot be the ones to come in and make the decisions. It has to remain with the members. Yeah, it's just so amazing. I was just saying that I think business schools should teach these sort of structures of, um, of, of like business ownership. Yeah, autonomy, self-sufficiency. 
our big deal. <coughs> well, you mentioned Mondragon. They create their own school because business schools weren't teaching it. They have their own bank in Mondragon. So, yes, and that's what we have to figure out is particular education and training information, which is the fifth principle. You went there right away. That, to me, is the heartbeat of a co-op is continually training uh, both to figure out what you are doing now and what we're doing is figuring out what would this co-op look like and who becomes members and how that gets decided and what's the buy-in and blah, on and on and on and how decisions are made. So, yeah, that's the, and that's the core of this education. And it would be great if schools were teaching it. What about cooperation among co-ops? Are you using that principle? Yeah. So, again, one of the um, soaps that we carry is made by a cooperative. We uh, provide wholesale to two cooperatives now. And in general, we want to build coalitions with other cooperatives so that we can provide soap, so that we can be their customers and so on and so forth. The other thing, uh, just to go back to the question about education and training, is like I have learned so much just <laughs> by doing in this last you know, year and a half, two years. It is astounding in terms of like when you are self-sufficient, the skills that you acquire, having to do your own taxes, you realize, oh my gosh, there's all of these different things that I need to stay abreast of, how to do shipping in large scale. And I think that oftentimes those skills or the, like the intricacies of how to manage those things are like outsourced, but when you know them, then you know the value of them. And it's such a it's such an illuminating and fun thing to do. So like I guess like learning by doing an apprenticeship. That's another thing that I would like to cooperate with cooperatives about is like just hang out with other people who are doing cooperative businesses and just see what they're doing on a regular basis in terms of, you know, uh, how do they manage their businesses? What is it like what are their products? Um, so so I would suggest you look at US Federation of Worker Co-ops to join them. They have training. NCBA, uh, which is the umbrella for the U.S., um, they have trainings and they have an impact conference, uh, which is phenomenal and fantastic uh, to learn those kinds of things. But the seventh principle is concern for community. I know you already that that's what you're about, particularly with anthropology and everything you talked about. We only have another minute, so can you tell us what message would you like to leave people with? Yeah, it is Definitely one of the motivating factors is concern for community, both uh, the Palestinian community, but also just people in general. I want people to have access to what I think is the best soap in the world because it's chemical free and it's healthy. It's locally sourced. It's um, it's not bad for you. It's the soap that I let my kid use. Um, it has a very low carbon footprint. It's good for the environment. Um, I feel very lucky because I'm uh, selling a product that I really love and care about, and I think is it like it embodies a lot of the ethics that I I think are important. So, if anybody is interested in learning more about Palestinian soap and obtaining a bar of soap and learning about my story, please go to PalestinianSoap.com or PalestinianSoap.coop. And yeah, also the other aspect of concern for the community is just relationship to history. So. Thank you. Thank you, Dina. Thank you so very much. Thanks for coming on. Everybody out there, we'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively.